Thank you very much. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer, if you would bow with me. Father, would you take these next moments and make them of far more import in the hearts and the lives of these people and in my own than in themselves they might appear worth by gracing them with your Holy Spirit, coming to reveal yourself and to reveal the demeanor with which your word should be proclaimed to your people and to the world. I pray that you would assist me and the rest of us at this perhaps weary hour of the night to be alert to all that you would say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, not too far from here, about 250 years ago, uh, Jonathan Edwards' preaching sparked a great awakening, as you know, in the churches. He was a great theologian, and he was a great man and a great preacher. We can't copy him, but we can learn a lot about the gravity and gladness of preaching from Jonathan Edwards. He was a man of extraordinary intensity. I remember the first time I read his resolutions. There were 70 of them printed in the little Banner of Truth page. I've got them all Xerox now, tucked away all over the place, categorized. And one of them that moved me at the time that he wrote as a young man was resolved to live with all my might while I live. He was a man of extraordinary earnestness and intensity and total seriousness in preaching. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Total seriousness in preaching. You will look in vain in the 1,200 extant sermons for a joke. He preached an ordination sermon in 1744 and said to the young man, If a minister has light without heat and entertains his hearers with learned discourses without a savor of the power of godliness or any appearance of fervency or of spirit and zeal for God and the good of souls, he may gratify itching ears and fill the heads of his people with empty notions but it will not be very likely to teach their hearts or save their souls. He had an overwhelming conviction about the reality of heaven and hell. And it absolutely shaped everything that he did and the demeanor in which he did it. And he was much criticized, as you know, by the more formal clergy in Boston for the emotional excesses that they thought he fostered in his fervency of preaching and his uh, lavish displays of heaven and hell. And in defense, he wrote in 1741 like this, talking about hell and why one ought to use a sense of urgency and earnestness to preach, to warn people. If any of you that our heads of families saw one of your children in a house that was all on fire over its head and in imminent danger of being consumed in the flames, 
that seemed to be very insensible of its danger and neglected to escape after you had often spoken to it and called to it, would you go on speaking to it in a cold and indifferent manner? Would not you cry aloud and call earnestly to it and represent the danger it was in and its own folly in delaying in the most lively manner you were capable of? Would not nature itself teach this and oblige you to it if you should continue to speak to the child only in a cold manner as you are wont to do in ordinary conversation about indifferent matters? Would not those about you begin to think that you were bereft of reason? Yes, they would, wouldn't they? That was his defense to Charles Chauncey for why he spoke the way he spoke about hell. From the testimonies of contemporary people, however, uh, Edwards had a very odd and uninspiring uh, homiletical style. It wasn't because he had a dramatic flair and it wasn't because he spoke extemporaneously when he wrote these things and when he was in the flush of the Great Awakening, he was still writing out his sermons in full and basically reading them from these little little manuscripts about that size that you can see down at the Beinecke Library at Yale. Well, what was his power then? Wherein consisted the successfulness of this this preacher? Sereno Dwight, who gathered together his memoirs, lived the generation after after uh, he died said this, one of the positive causes of his great success as a preacher was the deep and pervading solemnity of his mind. He had at all times a solemn consciousness of the presence of God. This was visible in his looks and his demeanor. It obviously had a controlling influence over all his preparations for the pulpit and was most manifest in all his public services. Its effect on the audience was immediate and not to be resisted. And then Sereno Dwight tells of asking a man named Mr. West, I have no idea who he was, who was old and had heard Edwards himself, Dwight hadn't, what his secret was and whether he was an eloquent preacher. And this is what this Mr. West said. He had no studied varieties of the voice, no strong emphasis. He scarcely gestured or even moved. And he made no attempt by the elegance of his style or the beauty of his pictures to gratify the taste and fascinate the imagination. But if you mean by eloquence, the power of presenting an important truth before an audience with overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling that the whole soul of the speaker is thrown into every part of the conception and delivery so that the solemn attention of the whole audience is riveted from the beginning to the close and impressions are left that cannot be effaced Mr. Edwards was the most eloquent man I ever heard. Now select the key phrases from those two testimonies. Intensity of feeling, 
weight of argument, deep and pervading solemnity of mind, savor of a power of godliness, fervency of spirit, a zeal for God. And these are the things that I mean by the gravity of preaching. If there was one thing that we can learn from Jonathan Edwards, it's something about the seriousness and the earnestness and the gravity of our calling in the preaching office. A hundred years later, let's let's look at another person. A hundred years later, across the ocean, Scotland, a hypocritical pastor named Thomas Chalmers got converted in his little parish named Kilmani. He became a tremendously powerful force among the evangelicals for world missions. In fact, I commend very highly the little book, The St. Andrews Seven. If I had been speaking on missions this week, I would have brought a hundred copies with me and given them away like I did out at Western Seminary two weeks ago. I believe that book would turn you upside down so fast I would have given you copies if you would have promised to read them. That was my Price. Well, Chalmers is one of the St. Andrew seven. The other six are missionaries to India, except for the 18 year old who died after he had two volumes of memoirs written. He had a tremendous impact on world missions. He had a tremendous impact on the church from his pastorate in Glasgow and then his two professorships in St. Andrews and Edinburgh. His fame as a preacher spread far and wide. Why? Well, James Stewart describes his preaching like this. He preached with a disconcertingly provincial accent, with an almost total lack of dramatic gesture, tied rigidly to his manuscript with his finger following the written lines as he read. Andrew Blackwood, in his book on on uh, the Protestant pulpit, describes him like this. He was in bondage to his manuscript and used long sentences. Well, what made this man so powerful and life-changing for so many people? Well, James Alexander, James Waddle Alexander, was teaching at Princeton Seminary at the time. And a man named John Mason came back from having heard Chalmers And uh, Alexander took him aside and asked him, what's the key? Tell me about this preacher. And in one sentence, Mason said, it is his blood earnestness. It is his blood earnestness. My goal tonight is to leave you with as strong an impression as I can about the importance of blood earnestness in preaching. I don't think we're in any danger today of mechanically imitating Jonathan Edwards. We were, I might say things a little differently, but I don't think that's on the horizon. We have fallen so far from the conception of preaching that would imitate an Edwards or a Chalmers that that is not one of the things I'm worried about. I say we've fallen because whether or not you should use a manuscript Whether or not you should preach two hours or half an hour, whether or not your sentences should be long or short, whether or not there should be stories or no stories, the glory of these men's preaching was their blood earnestness.
their intensity, their passion for their subject matter. We've fallen very far from that. I think so far that for me to try to make this plain to a typical audience, and I don't think you are a typical audience, would be almost impossible because there are no categories with which people operate today that could process what I'm trying to say and interpret it in any other terms than morose, boring, dismal, sullen, gloomy, surly, unfriendly, cold. Those are the categories that will leap immediately to the mind of people. And if I, if you in your churches labor with intensity to create a holy hush across the congregation, you can bank on it, you will be criticized as cultivating an unfriendly and cold church. Because most people simply have had no experience of the kind of gladness I'm going to talk about tonight that flows from a massive conception of the greatness of God and the glory of his grace and the atmosphere of holiness. And all they can imagine is that the absence of chatter in the congregation means the presence of stiffness, awkwardness, and unfriendliness. And those are the only categories with which they can interpret what might happen if a holy hush fell upon the people of God in a momentous moment of gravity. And so they strive for gladness, which they ought to do, through the only categories they have, namely lightheartedness and chipperness and talkativeness. And pastors, by and large, have absorbed this view, this narrow view of gladness and friendliness in the churches, and they cultivate it across the land with a pulpit demeanor and a verbal casualness that make blood earnestness, like Chalmers, or the pervading solemnity of a Jonathan Edwards, unthinkable, absolutely out of the question. And the result is a preaching atmosphere and a preaching style that is plagued by triviality and levity and carelessness and flippancy and a general spirit that nothing of any Eternal import is going to happen here this morning. So my thesis is this. Um, gladness and gravity should be woven together in the life of a preacher and his preaching in such a way that uh, the careless should be sobered and the saints should have their burdens uh, sweetened. Now, I choose the word sweetened to avoid certain connotations and to create certain others. To avoid the connotations of glib, petty attempts to stir up a happy feeling in the congregation and to connote something very deep that is laced with gravity. Another way to state the thesis would be this. Love for people does not make light of weighty matters. Hence gravity. And love for people does not commend a, an obedience that is not supported by the strength of joy. 
Hence gladness. You know, when Jesus said of the lawyers, you load men with burdens hard to bear. It's the next sentence that's just as important. And you don't lift one finger to help them. And of course, Jesus' alternative was Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's not because obedience is simple. The way that leads to life is hard and few there be that find it. But it's because he comes underneath and the yoke becomes light because he lifts his finger to help. And so in preaching, if you're going to lay a yoke on people, which we must, the yoke of Christ, there must be a preaching for gladness as well as an atmosphere of gravity. So my thesis is that they must be woven together in such a way as to um, sober the careless and to lighten the load and sweeten the burdens of the saints. Let's talk about the gladness of preaching for a little bit. I uh, am continually amazed that uh, actually I'm not anymore. I used to be. That when I say, if a pastor is to love his people, he must pursue his joy in ministry. And they would just scratch their heads and shake their heads. And they couldn't process this commendation of pursuing your own joy in ministry for the sake of your people in love. Because there is, I think for the last, say, 200 years or so, just been assumed. Since Immanuel Kant say, absolutely assumed in the Christian community that to pursue your own joy is the absolute contradiction of love. And we have been told again and again that it's okay to get the spin-off of love as joy. An unintended result of happiness is okay. But as soon as you target joy, you've abandoned the way of love. That's everywhere. That is stock in trade Christian dogma, which is why Ayn Rand of Atlas Shrugged hated Christianity and died and went to hell. I wrote her a letter before she died in a long paper that I wrote pleading with her to reconsider. She had a great mind. And so many right things to see. And thought Christianity was sheer, absurd altruism, which she interpreted as abandoning higher values in favor of lower values. She's wrong. And yet I knew why she thought that. It lingers in the air of every church that self-denial means that. And that to pursue your own joy in ministry is unloving to your people. And I'm going to show you from Scripture that it is not. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that if you abandon the pursuit of your joy in ministry, you abandon love, you strive against God, and you harm your people. Now, if you brought Bibles on this night, you can take them out and turn with me to Hebrews 13. 
And I'll show you a text that has become determinative for me as a pastor in trying to know how to love my people as I ought. Hebrews 13, verse 17, goes like this. Obey your leaders. He's talking to the church about its pastors and elders. Obey your leaders. Submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. And then there are different ways of handling the the Greek purpose clause here. The RSV starts a new sentence. It's all right. Let them do this with joy. Talking about pastors. Now let your pastors or your elders fulfill their ministry with joy. Metakaras. And not sadly. Stenodzantes. Burdensomely. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now, every pastor who reads that cannot be indifferent to his joy in ministry, lest he be indifferent to the advantage of his people. If you are indifferent to your joy, you are indifferent to the benefit of your people, because this text says so plainly, that if they don't pursue their ministry with joy, their people will be hurt, not helped. A joyless ministry is destructive to the congregation. It dare not be left as an optional icing on the cake of obedience. It is obedience. To be happy in the work of God is part of obedience. If you love your people. Now, why? Why? We don't ask why. I mean, you just don't say things like that and then you, you must get on the inside of this man's mind here. But before I pose the question why, let me support it with another text. First Peter, chapter five, verses two and three, a great eldership text for people like me and Lord willing, many of you. Verse two. I think I've got here, tend the flock of God that is in your charge, not under constraint, but willingly, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Now, how would you paraphrase those two adverbs, willingly and eagerly? Am I stretching it to say that means gladly? I don't think so. So we are commanded here, all of us pastors, are commanded not to labor under the burden as though it were a constraint upon us. We're commanded to be willing and eager about our work. Be happy in the ministry. Now, why? Why would a congregation be hurt if it had a pastor who didn't delight in the ministry of the word? And prayer and caring. I've got two reasons. One is that a pastor can't give what he doesn't have. And if he doesn't give gladness, he's not preaching the gospel. And he's unworthy of the pulpit. You can't give what you don't have. A pastor who guts out his work in gladness Obedience, it's got to be in quotes, transmits that life to his people, and there's a name for it. 
called hypocrisy or bondage or legalism. Not the freedom of the easy yoke and the light burden. Can you hear Handel's music? It makes you go like this and hear it. <laughs> I remember just listening to that hour on end in Germany. Because the music says the message so well. His yoke is easy and his burden is light. The music flies like the pastor should fly. Here's the second reason why you will hurt your people if you're not happy in the work and in your preaching. You can't glorify God if you're not happy in his service. You can't make God look glorious if knowing and serving him is burdensome. That's the point of 1 John 5, verses 2 to 4, which we won't take time to look at. A bored and unenthusiastic tour guide in the Swiss Alps is a dishonor to the mountains, a contradiction to the cliffs. So, Phillips Brooks, 100 years ago here in Boston, is absolutely right when he said, it is essential to the preacher's success that he should thoroughly enjoy his work. Its highest joy is in the great ambition that is set before it, the glorifying of the Lord and the saving of souls of men. No other joy on earth compares with that. As we read the lives of all the most effective preachers of the past, or as we meet the men who are powerful preachers of the word today, we feel how certainly, how deeply the very exercise of their ministry delights them. So the gladness of preaching is biblically essential if you would love men and glorify God. And what I'm trying to get across this week is those are the two aims of preaching, to make men glad in God to his glory. You must be happy. But there is a world of difference between the glib smiles and jokes of contemporary pastoral leadership and the joy of a Jonathan Edwards. And one of the reasons there is is because the strands of joy are not woven together with the strands of gravity that you find in this man. Listen to this quote from Edwards' Religious Affections. I think if I had to choose one passage from the Religious Affections that was my favorite, it would be this one. All gracious affections. Now, even that language is, a, is another language. Um, how shall I paraphrase? All emotions given by the Holy Spirit. Something like that. All gracious affections are a sweet odor to, that are a sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy.
Isn't that great? A humble, broken-hearted joy. There is something about the sheer weight of my sin, about the sheer holiness of God, and the momentousness of our calling that should give a fragrance of weight and humility and brokenness to all that we say in the pulpit. Now, why stress gravity if we have seen that gladness is so essential to success in the ministry? Aren't we striving against ourselves here, if I devote the rest of this talk now, to, to, to gravity, earnestness? And let me give the reason and then uh, move through uh, an explanation and defense of it and then close with, with about seven uh, suggestions for how to cultivate a biblical interweaving of, of gladness and gravity in your ministry. The reason that I think gravity must be stressed and, and is essential is that preaching is God's appointed way or appointed means for the conversion of sinners, for the reviving of the church, and for the preserving of the saints. And therefore, at each one of those three stages, heaven and hell are at issue. And heaven and hell are the greatest realities in the world. And the stakes are simply terrible every time you undertake to preach the word of God. The salvation of souls. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. It pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. God saves people everlastingly through the ministry of preaching. And that's awesome. To think that on a Sunday morning, through the ministry of the word of a human being, Someone would pass from darkness to light, from death to life, from heaven-bound destruction to, did I say heaven? Hell-bound destruction to heaven-bound glory is simply staggering on Saturday night. How anybody can watch television on Saturday night who plans to preach on Sunday morning is beyond comprehension to me. Or to go to a party or anything like that. I mean, the things that are at stake in a few hours are so momentous that to gather yourself away from the mammoth influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to try to get in close enough to God so that you are purged at least partly and brought into a frame of mind and heart that is worthy of the momentousness of the occasion. Paul, when he thought about this, said, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? He just was struck with awe that in his own ministry, the word and his own demeanor created an aroma which for some would 
catch their gracious olfactory nerves and lead them to glory. And for others, it would be reprehensible and send them to destruction. And as Paul moved through the Mediterranean world like a cloud of the aroma of God, he saw people falling away on the sides. It's just awesome what this man felt about his ministry and what Jonathan Edwards and Thomas Chalmers and the like felt in their blood earnestness. If a person is not made earnest and grave by this fact that people are saved through preaching, then the congregation will learn unconsciously that not much is at stake on Sunday morning. And therefore, it's a social gathering. You get a little lecture about religious things and the whole atmosphere is fairly chatty and homey and friendly and insignificant. Ralph Turnbull said, No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. No man can give the impression in the pulpit that he is clever and that Christ is mighty to save. Or Jowett, John Henry Jowett put it like this, We never reach the inmost room of any man's soul by the expediencies of the showman and the buffoon. And yet, today, it seems that the stock in trade of preachers is to be cute and clever and funny, at least to get things rolling the way they should. I have seen congregations where it appears that the pastors actually fear the seriousness of their people. I have seen a holy hush fall upon a church in a moment of truth and watched pastors as though not knowing what to do, break it with a pun or a witticism, as though they are utterly out of their element at that moment. Come on, let's, let's laugh. I don't know what to do. We're not happy anymore. Laughter seems to have replaced repentance as the goal of preaching. Laughter means people feel good. It means people like you. It means you have moved them. It means you've got a measure of power. It seems to have all the marks of successful communication if the depth of sin and the holiness of God and the danger of hell and the brokenness of hearts is left out of account. I am literally amazed these days as I go to certain conferences where revival is being spoke about. Revival. So I'm shifting now to a second point from the saving of souls to the reviving of the church. To go to conferences where I watch men cry out in their prayer sometimes, Lord, send revival. We need revival. And then watch them to... Proceed to cultivate an atmosphere where it would be absolutely unthinkable and impossible for the Holy Spirit to fall in revival fire. Namely, through jokes and flippancy and levity. I've been reading recently lectures on revivals by William Sprague because I'm burdened for revival in my own church. You get invited to places like this, you know, and everybody has the impression, wow, 
success, great church. You don't know the half of it. You don't know the burdens and the failures in a church that lacks so much. Asahel Nettleton, I've been reading. Anybody heard of Asahel Nettleton? You ought to have heard of Asahel Nettleton before you heard of Charles Finney. Because they were contemporaries and Nettleton did it right, I think. Um, well, I've been reading these two people, Sprague and Nettleton. And uh, here's what I'm learning. I believe it's confirmed in Scripture. Both of them teach that before and as a part of every deep and abiding spiritual awakening, God sends into a community a sense of spiritual seriousness upon the people. Let me quote from Nettleton's uh, memoirs. Fall of 1812, South Salem, Connecticut. His preaching produced an immediate solemnity on the minds of the people. The seriousness soon spread through the place and the subject of religion became the engrossing topic of conversation. Spring, 1813, North Lyme. There was no special seriousness when he commenced his labors, but a deep solemnity soon pervaded the congregation. August, 1814, East Granby. The effect of his entrance into the place was electric. The schoolhouse was filled with trembling worshipers. A solemnity and seriousness pervaded the community. And when you read Sprague's chapter on the means that God uses to bring revival, the very first one he lists is seriousness. Listen to this quote. I appeal to any of you who have been in the midst of a revival whether a deep solemnity did not pervade the scene. And if you at such a time have been have wished to be gay, have you not felt that that was not the place for it? It were worse than preposterous to think of carrying forward such a work by any means which are not marked by the deepest seriousness or to introduce anything which is adapted to awaken and cherish the lighter emotions when all such emotions should be awed out of mind. All ludicrous anecdotes and modes of expression and gestures and attitudes are never more out of place than when the Spirit is moving upon the hearts of a congregation. Everything of this kind is fitted to grieve him away because it directly contradicts the errand on which he has come, namely, the convincing of sinners of their guilt and the renewing of them to repentance. And in spite of this, historical evidence and manifest common sense, you find all over the place people bemoaning the absence and the withholding of revival conjoined with levity. It's a strange thing. It's a strange thing in my tradition. Levity, that's a good negative word. And I want to contrast it with something positive, lest you get a wrong impression. And I'm going to use Spurgeon as an example of robust humor, which is not negative, though it can be misused. 
Spurgeon used humor to great effect. Uh, some have thought him a funny preacher. Uh, that's not the case, according to Robertson Nicole, who read all 63 volumes of the Metropolitan Tabernacle pulpit. Robertson Nicole said of Spurgeon three years after he died, Evangelicalism of the humorous type, no, evangelism of the humorous type may attract multitudes, but it lays the soul in ashes and destroys the very germs of religion. Mr. Spurgeon is thought by those who do not know his sermons to have been a humorous preacher. As a matter of fact, there has been no preacher whose tone was more uniformly earnest and reverent and solemn. Spurgeon is especially helpful here because he had a deep appreciation for the proper place of laughter and humor. He said to his students, and I recommend so highly lectures to his students by Charles Spurgeon. Get it and read it. It was the first book I read after becoming a pastor and found it tremendously helpful, especially the, the chapter, this apprentice, especially the chapter called The Minister's Fainting Fits, <laughs> which means depression and discouragement. It's mighty. It's a great, great chapter. Here's what he said about humor. We must conquer some of us especially, and he means himself here, we must conquer some of us especially our tendency toward levity. Now, I'd love to say this in the annual meetings of certain conferences I go to. We must conquer our temptation toward levity. A great distinction exists between holy cheerfulness, which is a virtue, and that general levity, which is a vice. There is a levity which has not enough heart to laugh, but trifles with everything. It is flippant, hollow, unreal. A hearty laugh is no more levity than a hearty cry. And surely it's a sign of the age that pastors today are far more adept at humor than they are at tears. Um, the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.18 says, Of sinners, of whom I tell you, with weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction and who mind earthly things. And unless we can recover that weeping, there never will be a revival and there never will be any abiding renewal in the churches. Let me ask you just rhetorically, would there not come upon the congregation of your church, no matter how flippant they might be ordinarily on Sunday morning, would there not come upon them a sense of sweetness and love and conviction and earnestness? If a pastor stood up on Easter Sunday morning and instead of beginning with a little story or a joke, would use the words or some of his own with deep earnestness, the words of John Donne to his congregation one Easter when he said, I hope by the grace of God with tears, what sea could furnish my eyes with tears enough to pour out if I should think that of all this congregation which looks me in the face just now, 
I should not meet one of you at the resurrection at the right hand of God. Genuine affection and emotion. Even if the, if the tears don't roll down here, if they roll down here, people will know there would come upon the church a tremendous power. If we had time to develop it, I would move to this third point in more detail. Uh, not only is, is gravity appropriate because preaching saves souls. Not only is gravity important because preaching is intended to revive the church. But here's something that is so little understood, it seems, at least in my tradition. Gravity is important because preaching is intended by God to preserve to enable to persevere the saints. Second Timothy 2.10 says, I endure everything, Paul speaking, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation, which in Christ Jesus goes with eternal glory. In other words, labor for the elect, is not icing on the cake of their eternal security. It is a means to their eternal security. This is so misunderstood by many people. Eternal security in biblical thought is a community project. Hebrews 3.12 Exhort one another Every day, as long as it is called today, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhortation in the Christian community is not icing on the cake of eternal security. It is the appointed means by which the Holy Spirit will preserve the elect. And if we abandon the means, we have no warrant for thinking anybody in this church will persevere. And therefore, preaching on Sunday morning is of eternal proportions, not because there might be an unbeliever in the crowd merely, which is the way so many pastors think. I might be able to save one person here today. My conception is I save everybody every Sunday. Because my exhortation from the pulpit is one of the biblically appointed means by which God ordains to cause his people to persevere. If you believe that you must evangelize in order for the elect to be converted, and I hope none of you is a hyper-Calvinist, but only a biblical Calvinist, if you believe that the word of preaching is necessary for the begetting of faith. It is no problem for you to believe that the word of preaching is necessary for the preservation of faith. And if you believe that not going to preach will allow people in a hidden uh, people or an unreached people group to drop into eternity without Christ, it is not inconsistent for you to look out upon a congregation of professing believers and think that if you abandoned a faithful exercise of the ministry of the word, they could drop into perdition. It is so crucial to conceive of what happens on Sunday morning in these ultimate terms so that preaching is not viewed as a kind of optional icing on the cake of all these people who are home free. 
though as by fire, if they're carnal. Oh, what a devastation that has done to the blood earnestness of the pulpit. That, that notion that because of some decision you made in the past, that you're home free to glory without the perseverance of your faith. Colossians 1.23, we shall be saved if we continue in the faith. 1 Corinthians 15.1 and 2, by which you are saved if you hold it fast. This has tremendous import for preaching, if you believe these things. So let me repeat my thesis again and move to the concluding application and suggestions for your practical cultivation of these things. The thesis is that gladness and gravity should be woven together in the life of pastor and preaching in such a way as to sober the careless and to sweeten the burdens of the saints. Or love for people does not make light of weighty realities, hence gravity, and love for people does not burden them with obedience without lifting the finger of grace to make that joyful and light. Seven suggestions for how to cultivate such an interweaving in your life. Number one, strive for a practical, earnest, glad-hearted, universal holiness in every dimension of your life. Don't strive to be a preacher. Strive to be a person. We've seen enough preachers recently who are not the persons they claim to be. One of the reasons that uh, you can't be something in the pulpit that you aren't during the week is that it just won't cut it. It, it. But when you try to be in the pulpit, something you aren't, the people see the difference. They will eventually, at least if they don't at first. For example, if you try to be blood earnest in the pulpit and flippant at the deacon meeting, it will not work. If you try to be solemn and somber in the pulpit and are Mr. Flip and Glib at the dinner meetings, something will be ajar in the life of your people. There needs to be a universal striving to be a kind of person that weaves together a gladness and a gravity that the people can kind of smell as the aroma of God. Universal holiness, not just pulpit demeanor. Number two, make uh, your life and especially your study a life of constant communion with God. Constant communion with God. And I say especially your study. Richard Cecil, these old evangelical Episcopalians or Anglicans in England, said... The leading defect in Christian ministers is the want of a devotional habit. Hmm. We are called to the ministry of the word and prayer, according to Acts 6. Without prayer, 
the God of our studies will be the unfrightening and insipid God of academic gamesmanship. Fruitful study and fervent prayer live and die together. Here's a great story from B.B. Warfield. I just love this when I read it. I read it in uh, Mark Knoll's book on uh, the Princeton theology. B.B. Warfield was uh, approached one time by an indignant anti-intellectual type and said, um, I think ten minutes on your knees will teach you more of true and deep knowledge of God than ten hours over your books. And Warfield had the greatest response I can imagine. He braced himself and he said, What? More than ten hours over your books on your knees? Which is exactly right. Exactly right. The same should be true of the preparation of your sermons. Cotton Mather's rule was so good. And I chastise myself again and again for how incredibly vulnerable I am to the spirit of prayerlessness in the preparation of sermons. And therefore, Cotton Mather's rule, I commend it to you. His rule was to stop at the end of every paragraph that he wrote and to pray and examine himself and fix his heart on some holy impression of his subject. And I get rolling in my sermons. I'm flipping around in commentaries in the Bible and, and I'll realize two, three hours into this, I haven't talked to God or asked his help at all in the framing of a sentence, in a logical link, in the choice of an illustration. He's gone. He's just out of mind. I'm churning out my sermon. That's awful. I want so bad to live in the constant communion of God as I write or outline or note my sermons. Suggestion number three. That was maintain a constant communion with God. Number three, read books that are written by men and women who bleed Bible. That's what uh, Spurgeon said of uh, Bunyan. You prick him anywhere and he bleeds Bible. By people who bleed Bible... And who are in blood earnest about the truths that they talk about. Find some books like that. Now, Lewis Meads, out at Fuller, told us in an ethics class my senior year, find a great evangelical theologian and become his peer by reading everything he wrote and getting inside his skin. I thought that was a great idea. And so I've read Jonathan Edwards almost every month for the last 17 years. And I can't. I thought I could. It would be hard to, to overstate the impact of that man's life and writings upon my own heart and mind. And through him, to find my way to Calvin and Luther and Bunyan and Burroughs and Bridges and Flavel and Owen and Charnock and Gurnall and Watson and Sibbs and Ryle and, and others. These are the sorts I mean by men who bleed Bible and are in blood earnest about what they talk about. Read them. Because they will shape you. If you read 
bland stuff, you will feel bland at the end of the book. Number four, contemplate death frequently. It's absolutely inevitable for every one of you in this room. And I, I, I serve a church with a lot of old people. At the end of every year, in our annual report, we lift, list the, the people who've died. That number is invariably between 12 and 15 for the last seven years. So that as I stand before the church and read the names, I just look out over them and I say, which 12 of you will not be here next year? There will be 12 gone. It's never failed. Edwards, um, in his resolutions as a young man, said things like this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Number 55, resolved to endeavor to my utmost so to act as I can think I should do if I had already seen the happiness of heaven and the torments of hell. I can't imagine anything more fruitful in a life than to let your ad- your imagination be engaged to put yourself on your hospital bed with terminal cancer with your family gathered around in the last days of your life and ask yourself what you would regret. And if you're pastors, you won't have to use your imagination very hard because you would have been there and listened. And you know that the things you would regret you should avoid and the things that we'd have longed for you should start doing. And the meditation upon your death is one of the great powers of changing your life into earnestness and, and seriousness. Every time I do a funeral, and I've done more funerals now than most pastors do in a lifetime, I did a funeral every three weeks for the first year and a half of my ministry because of the kind of church I took. Every time I sit behind a coffin in a funeral home or in the church, I picture myself in that coffin or my wife or my son Karsten or Benjamin or Abraham or Barnabas. And the tears generally roll down my cheek because I don't sometimes even know these older people or people who are associated with our church. The tears roll down my cheek as my imagination lets myself take leave of my family or one of them take leave for me. And I try to think what life would be like. And you become serious. There's nothing like terminal diseases and death to cause the fog of spiritual, of uh, triviality to be blown away from your life. I mean, death has a way of clearing the air remarkably. Don't run from it in the ministry. Let your mind dwell on your own dying and reflect upon the dying of others so that you will know that this all-important reality is serious and makes everything leading up to it serious. Suggestion number five. Consider the biblical teaching often that you will be judged with greater strictness than other people. James 3, 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, For you know that we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. Or listen to this from Hebrews. We read it already. They, the pastors, are keeping watch over your soul as men who will have to give an account. I wonder how many pastors dwell on that on Saturday night. 
that if I were to die at noon tomorrow, I would have to give an account for that message, how I preached it, whether I cared, how earnest I was. Acts 20, verse 26, Paul to the elders in Ephesus, I am innocent of the blood of you all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, which implies evidently that if you don't fulfill your ministry with the full and faithful counsel of God, the blood of people will be upon your hands. And that's serious. That's grave. That's earnest. Number six. Consider the example of Jesus. He was as kind and tender and gentle as a righteous man could be. But he was not remorse. morose. Uh, John the Baptist might have been. He was accused of having the demon. Jesus was a glutton and a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors and sinners in the popular mind. John the Baptist might have been morose, but not Jesus Christ. He had the reputation of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He wasn't involved in any kind of psychopathic uh, tendency towards being a killjoy. Uh, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He never preached a careless sermon. There is no evidence or record of any flippant word. He never told a joke, as far as we know, though I wouldn't want to rule it out. He was in blood earnest about the truth, even when that sword was sheathed in biting irony or humor. Jesus is the great example of preachers. The crowds heard him gladly. The children sat in his lap. Women were honored in his presence. And nobody in all the Bible spoke of hell more often or in more horrid terminology. So be like Jesus. And finally, know God. Get to know God. Strive to know God. This is the seventh suggestion. Don't be content to lead your people about in the foothills of his glory. Rather, Become a mountain climber on the cliffs of God's majesty and let the truth overwhelm you. You will never exhaust the heights of God. Every time you climb up over a rim of insight into the character of God's infinite being, there stretches out before you another range of glory, a thousand miles as far as the eye can see disappearing into the clouds let it hit you that endless ages of discovery in the infinite being of God will not be able to weaken your gladness in his glory nor diminish the intensity of your gravity in his presence. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I just pray so earnestly now that you would teach us the proper mingling of gladness in your grace 
the gravity under the holiness of your glorious majesty. I pray that you would grant us to tremble at your word and to go forth leaping like calves from the stall. And I pray that you'd help us preach with a demeanor and with a form and a content that corresponds to the great aims of preaching, the glory of your name and the gladness of your people. And I ask it in the name of your Son and our Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen.